Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Faith Worship Center's weekly sermon. We hope you are inspired and encouraged by this week's message as we all live to bring more of heaven to earth. Good morning, everybody. I am so blessed to be here. Um, Some familiar faces I see from the last time. I think a few years ago now. It's all a blur. (laughs) I don't even know when it was, but it was a few years. Um, So I hope some of you are new to to hear my testimony today. Um, If it's streaming online as well, um, feel free to reach out and maybe I can be a support. That is the whole purpose of me coming to share my testimony because God clearly told me it's your story, but it's for my glory. And he told me that um, when I first started this ministry, probably eight years ago or so. And so what I'm here to say and talk about is my testimony of surviving sex trafficking and addiction. And so when we have this conversation in honor of National Human Trafficking Awareness Month, um, it's to bring a real face to the issue. Because a lot of us don't realize that sex trafficking is happening in our communities, let alone hear a real testimony, because a lot of the survivors don't come forth and share. Because it takes a long time to go from the victim mindset to a survivor mindset. And we have a lack of services. There's not really many people out there doing this work, especially here in New England. There's just a handful of us. Um, And it takes a long time for women to get rid of that shame and be able to come forward. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you carry that shame a lot longer. And so what made me vulnerable to sex trafficking? Well, what do you think? What are some ways that young girls and boys are vulnerable to becoming victims of sex trafficking. Just shout it out. What? Bad home life. Yep. That includes being abused at home, um, having addiction in the home, domestic violence, maybe a parent is in jail, maybe you're a single parent. What other things? Right. That lack of identity and in, in belonging. Drugs, being addicted to drugs. There's a woman who we work with today whose mother was their first exploiter because she was addicted to drugs. So she traded her daughter for, for the drugs. And for, for this woman that we work with to come to realization that her mother exploited her first was completely eye-opening. She couldn't even believe when she said, my mother was my first pimp. Yep, very sad and common. So a lot of the girls get addicted early on before they're trafficked, or some get addicted while they're in as a way of the trafficker to control them. Or like me, you get addicted on the way out to cope with all the trauma that you've been through. And so think about the kids in the foster care system. Young girls and boys that are in the foster care, running away, they're in unsafe foster care homes, um, the average age into the commercial sex trade is between 12 and 14. And they're runaways, and these traffickers know exactly where the group homes are. I used to work for a nonprofit in Boston, and there was a group home in Arlington. And the girls would run away, and they'd go down to the main street, and the traffickers would hang out right around that main area because they knew the girls would come, and they'd scoop them right up. So if the average age into the commercial sex trade is between 12 and 14, What happens to this girl when we see her in her 20s and she's still involved in the commercial sex trade? We sometimes think that she chose that life 
right? Because prostitution connotates a choice in our mind because our culture and society makes us think that. But I'm here to tell you that no little girl dreams of becoming a prostitute. It is nothing on our list. We don't, beca- we don't want to be prostitutes, drug addicts, but something happens along the way to put us in these situations, and then we can't get out. We get trapped. And prostitution is not the world's oldest profession, but the world's oldest oppression against women and children. And I want you to realize that it happens to boys and men's too, that you know not only young girls get trafficked, they are the majority, but it does happen to young boys as well. And men aren't always the traffickers, even though they are the majority most of the time, but there are women, madams, right? <clears throat> and then we have to talk about the demand side of why sex trafficking keeps happening, because it's a business, and it's a multi-billion dollar business, and if it wasn't for the demand, there wouldn't have to be such a supply. And men, are unfortunately, are the demand. And I'm not a man-hater, no shame, or anything like that, um, but we, we have to keep it real. We have to have these conversations with the boys in our lives, nephews, sons, whoever, because a lot of times pornography can be that gateway. It's kind of like the gateway drug into becoming a buyer <clears throat> because you start to look at porn at young ages, especially today with the tablets and the Internet. Remember when you were young and you had to, like, sneak to find a Playboy in your brother's room or your father's room? You couldn't even go to the gas station and buy a Playboy if you weren't 18. Now these young kids are seeing it seven or eight years old, and it changes the brain. It's like a drug, changes the chemicals, and they become addicted. And they just keep looking and looking, and they search for more hardcore porn, and then that's not enough, so then what happens? They become purchasers a lot of times. I can't tell you how many homes I went to where the wives and kids weren't there. You know, these men aren't another category. They're regular men in our, where we work, in our church, in our community, our neighbors. You never know. Um, men, men that would come in to Boston for business, and I'd go to all the fancy hotels in Boston and um, visit these men. Thank you. Um, so what I'm here to say is that we all have a role to play in making this end. And maybe we really could make it end if we all play our part and educate, make aware, have these hard, awkward conversations with people in our little circles, watch documentaries about trafficking, read survivor stories, support survivor-led organizations and ministries that do this work. And so for me, um, growing up in a home, two parents still married to this day, but very dysfunctional. My mom struggled severely with mental illness, and my dad worked a lot to provide for the family, so he was never really around. And so I lacked that nurture, that care, that connection. My dad wasn't a big hugger, and my mom could barely take care of herself. And I had a brother who was 10 years older than me who was sexually abused as a kid. He was around 7 or 8 when he was abused by a family member. And this just set him up on a path of brokenness his entire life. And so when I came around, he really wasn't interested because he was dealing with his own trauma. And I had, luckily, grandparents who were very kind and loving and doting. I came from a big Italian Catholic family, so my grandparents, my nanny and papa, And I'd go over on Sundays, and they'd cook macaroni and meatballs, and they would take me to church, and my nanny would tuck me in and read me bedtime stories. Really love me, which is so, so important, because I wasn't getting that at home. And so now that that planted a seed of love in there, but it wasn't enough for me to have a strong self-esteem and a strong self-assense worth, 
but I knew someone cared about me, someone loved me. And I had some idea about God, not like a complete picture, but, you know, I knew there was a God. I, I believed in that. And then I just went on through life. But unfortunately, around 12, 13 years old, that lovely middle school age where everyone struggles, I started drinking and drugging, hanging out with people I shouldn't have been with, older boys, get into situations, and unfortunately experienced sexual violence as a teen. So I was raped at least twice. But I don't remember the details because of the blackouts from the drinking and the drugging, which led me on a path of more shame and so forth. But I knew I needed to do something when I graduated high school, so I went to vocational high school in Wakefield, and I became a hairdresser. And at 19 years old, I'm graduated. I'm working in a hair salon. I was going to North Shore Community College in Lynn for journalism because I wanted to be a writer. I thought I'd move to New York City and write for a fashion magazine and work at a hair salon. Right? I had dreams and goals, but a man comes along and entices me, and befriends me, becomes my boyfriend. I met him at a local nightclub. Do you remember the palace? (laughs) So here I am at the palace, underage drinking. Shouldn't have been there, but I was there since I was probably 15, 16 years old. It was regular, normal to go. And I was with some friends, and he comes up to me, and he's on a complete stranger because he knew some of my extended friends. And he brings me to the bar, and he buys me a drink, and he spends $7 on me, and I'm impressed. That's all it took. And he's handsome, and he has jewelry, and he has a wad of cash, and he's dressed nicely. And he's paying attention to me, showing interest. We exchange phone numbers, and we get together a few days later, and he shows up in his champagne-colored Mercedes-Benz, and I was intrigued. I had never dated a guy like this. He wasn't that much older than me, maybe 20, 21. And we start to date. And then he begins to groom me, right? So there was plenty of red flags, but nothing that I was paying attention to. Obviously, he was a drug dealer or something because he wasn't coming from a wealthy family. He was raised in the inner city of Boston, Dorchester, Roxbury, single mother, never knew his dad. He was kind of the breadwinner of the family, so he was out on the streets hustling guns and drugs from a young age, probably 12, 13. And he knew that selling women would be a lot more profitable and a lot less risky than selling guns and drugs. And he was being taught the rules of the game by other older pimps and traffickers. And when he met me, he didn't, you know, come off like that and tell me that he was going to be my pimp and (laughs) prostitute me. No. He took me out to dinner, took me to get my hair and nails done, took me to the mall. We went shopping. He met my parents, came over for Christmas, Thanksgiving. He really played that boyfriend role. And at the same time, as we're getting to know each other and he's grooming me, I had no idea that he would become my pimp. No, no idea. And you have to realize that a lot of the women who end up in the commercial sex trade are sexually abused from a young age. So the average is 80 to 90% of women are sexually abused and they end up in the commercial sex trade. So a trafficker doesn't have to do that much grooming by the time he reaches her because the dial's already been turned. But for me, he really had to groom me because I wasn't sexually abused. What was my vulnerability? I was looking for love. I was looking for attention. I was looking for a place to belong. And he had to really fill that need and get me to love and trust him. And you have to realize that traffickers want to break you down as much as possible, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, because they're trying to build the, beat you down to build you back up into a product, because that's what you're seen as. You're not seen as a human, but as a moneymaker, as a product. And so they would work on this and work on this patiently. 
You know, and at the same time, he would plant little seeds of doubt in my mind. Well, why would you want to go to school for journalism? That's stupid. Why would you want to work at a hair salon? You can own one. I know where you can make a lot of money. You can have a family, a business. You can have anything that you want. You're having sex anyways. You might as well get paid for it. And so a lot of times the commercial sex trade is given as empowering. That's why a lot of women, too, get into the commercial sex trade, whether it's stripping, high-priced escorting. Um, nowadays, everything's on the Internet, and they see no harm in that because maybe no one's touching them. But it's all still a lie. And there's always a little bit of truth in a lie, right? Well, if I can just make all this money, yeah, I am having sex anyways. I just get paid for it now, right? It gives you a false sense of security, a false sense of power. And before you know it, you're sucked into it. And then again, you can't get out. You don't come out of the commercial sex trade unscathed. There's no way. Because it does deep, deep soul damage. As you all know, sex wasn't created to be bought and sold. It is so much deeper and created by God for a reason, but it's been exploited. <clears throat> in, the mind, the, in the mind, I'm trying to help you guys understand what goes on in the mind. It's like coming out of a cult, right? You need to be deprogrammed. You need to undo all those lies, all that brainwashing that you've been fed and believed. So for so many years, after him first you know, introducing this life to me, telling me, that I chose it, and that's another thing traffickers want to do, make you believe you chose the life. Because then if you chose it, it's your fault you can't get out. And the manipulation is so good that you really do believe, I chose it, it must be my fault, I have to stay. And so he would constantly do this to me, get me to believe this would be a great idea. I wasn't really thrilled, but don't you know, Satan always has all these tricks up his sleeve, and obviously if you're not a believer, you don't see them coming. And I get invited to a college party at Salem State University, all these boys drinking and hanging out. And I come into the dorm, and they tell me that a stripper's coming to be the entertainment. And I think nothing of it, right? Because our culture says that's normal, and that society says that's fine. And college boys do this, I guess, right? So the woman walks in, she goes to take off her clothes, and it's my best friend. And I was shocked, because I didn't know she had gone into this life. I knew she had a new boyfriend, but I didn't really know the details. So she doesn't dance. We cry, ruin the party. We get kicked out because all these drunk boys are mad that their entertainment got spoiled. And I go back home to my boyfriend. I tell him what happened, and he happens to know her trafficker. So a few days later, he takes me to her house. She lives in Chestnut Hill. She has a big home with a fence around it and a Range Rover and a BMW in the driveway. And I come in. It's big. It's beautiful. It's clean. Her trafficker has his own room, she has hers, and there's a few other women that live there that either had their own or shared a room. They were considered her wife-in-laws. So all of a sudden I started realizing it was a different language. I hadn't heard, you know, wife-in-law before. I didn't know, like, a guy would live here with all these women, and this was considered his stable. She wasn't handcuffed to a radiator. She wasn't beaten. She wasn't drugged. If anything, she looked good. She had clothes, shoes, jewelry, a Louis Vuitton bag. At that point, that was like, you've made it. <laughs> and I start seeing all this stuff that she has, and I start to feel like, maybe I am missing out. Maybe it's not that bad. And she's telling me she does these parties, and she makes all the money, and then she goes down to a massage parlor in Connecticut, and she gives all the money to her man, and he gets her anything she wants. So can you see how it got worked out? I got manipulated and broke down and groomed and, and, and lied to, and I bought the lie, and then I saw my friend appearing like she was glamorous, 
and a hook, line, and sinker. Before I know it, he sends me down to Hotford, Connecticut with a duffel bag full of baby wipes, condoms, high heel stilettos, skimpy dress. My friend taught me how to speak to the sex buyers. You know, you had to do the least amount of work to make the most amount of money. I had a quota to make. I wasn't allowed to come out of each session without less than $100. And the people in Connecticut that ran this massage parlor had been in business at least 20, 30 years, very professionally ran. In a busy finance district, people walk by it all day, have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. And remember the combat zone in downtown Boston? Well, that was trafficking too. <laughs> we just didn't have a name for it then. And so they did a good job at pushing it off the streets, cleaning it up, but all it really did was go indoors. And so I'm coming to Connecticut. The um, bodyguard buzzes me in. I go up, um, come to the front desk. The lady's waiting for me. She asks me my name. So their new name, new identity, I have to become this other person. And I'm shown around the place as a lounge area where all the girls sit on these little musty, sticky, leathery chairs that everything just feels grimy. There's no windows, and it's dark, and it's musty. There's probably girls 16 to 60-year-old living there, I mean working there. And then there's a shower, a locker room where the men change, and then you go in the other part where there's eight or nine rooms lined up with a mattress and a nightstand. And you go in these rooms, and that's where you do whatever. And so the first time I get chosen, the gentleman comes in. He is a regular. He comes every Friday. And he wanted the new girl, who happened to be me. And so I'll never forget this memory. It's like burned in my brain. I could remember his name, what he smelled like, what, he, what kind of shirt he had on. And I was completely hor- horrified and so traumatized in order to exchange myself, I just shut off. I unplugged. They call it disassociation, right? In order for me to cope with this type of trauma, I just up oh, unplugged. And at the same time, feeling so horrified and disgusted, at the end, he hands me 80 or $100, and I just remember trying to feel excited about that. Wow, look how much money I just made. And you think of those young girls coming out of poverty who've never seen a $100 bill in their life, right? This creates an adrenaline, an addiction, And I just try to focus on the money. And I do this over and over again. I work from 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. a few days in a row. And again, the reason why he sent me there first, because it was hardcore. They want to break you down. If you can survive Connecticut, then you can be moved up to another massage parlor that's a little more high-priced. So I was there for a few days. He comes back, picks me up. We come back home to Cambridge where he was living. And we get out of the car, and I have a pocket full of money. And we come around the front, and he hands, puts his hand out. And I knew that gesture meant to hand over the money. But in my mind, I start logically thinking, why would I give you the money? Wait a second. Are you my pimp? I thought you loved me. How am I going to have sex with strangers? You're my boyfriend, and I'm going to give you the money. Like, everything just felt wrong. And I felt so ashamed, and I was so confused. And he says, is there going to be a problem? And I say, No. And I hand it over. So he was making it known. This is, this is what we do. You go to work, you give me the money, and this is how it's going to be. <clears throat> and I hand it over. And I feel like as I look back, I lost my voice. I lost my courage. I was full of shame. I go back home to my parents' house. I go back working at the hair salon. I go back to college. And every few days, I disappear and go to Connecticut. I was being trafficked, living at home. My parents weren't paying attention as a child, never mind as a 19-year-old, right? So no one was really asking me questions. It didn't matter. Before I know it, I start to speak up. I tell them I can't do this anymore. I changed my mind. 
I feel disgusting. I can't live this double life. I can't look my parents in the eyes and keep lying to them. And that's when he starts to use violence as a way to keep me under his control. Right? So you guys all know what domestic violence is. Well, that's kind of where we are in the anti-trafficking movement. We're like 15, 20 years into the anti-trafficking movement where everybody is almost aware. That's what domestic violence took at least 40 years for it to be so widely known and educated. And that's where we're getting, where it's talking about in schools and so forth. But this type of sex trafficking is like domestic violence on steroids, right? Because of the shame that you're feeling because of the exploitation. And because it's intimate partner violence. So he puts his hands on me. We're driving home from Connecticut. I'm driving. I say something he doesn't like. And he backhands me so hard, this side of my head hits the window. And I couldn't see. I saw stars. I didn't think that was a thing. But I had to pull over because my vision was blurry. And I pull over. He proceeds to pull me out of the car and beat me on the side of the highway. And there's another trafficker in the back with another girl. He pulls him off of me, throws me in the back seat, and we drive home to Boston. And I just cried the entire way home because I was like, oh, no, what did I get myself into? I'm not going to be able to just walk away. This isn't going to be that easy. So when someone starts putting their hands on you, everything changes. And I had never been in a relationship like that before. This was coming out of nowhere. But again, you think about those young girls have been abused from a young age. And someone starts putting their hands on them, well, kind of normalized, right? They know it's wrong, but it's normal. I knew this wasn't normal, but now I felt trapped. Before I know it, I become completely isolated. I'm living with him in a single-family home in Everett, Mass., I'm considered his bottom bitch. That's the term they use, excuse me. Meaning I had to cook clean, do the laundry, take care of everything. The other girls that he would pull in, I would have to teach the rules of the game. You know, I was like the number one girl. I was his first one. Because he had just come out of the streets of selling guns and drugs, and this was like his first go at being a pimp. And so I completely isolated living there with him for those years. From working in Connecticut, he moved me up to a massage parlor in Kittery, Maine that was notorious, known in Portsmouth, Kittery area. Higher class than Hartford, 45-minute um, drive. So I went there four days a week. I had to go to real massage school in New Hampshire. I forget where I went to get a real massage therapy certificate. The school was in on it, obviously. They had a whole class full of the girls that were working in that massage parlor in one class. They taught us real techniques. We paid them a lot of cash. And then at the end, we took a sealed envelope, which was our certificate apparently, with a lot more cash, and gave that to the lawyer, who then paid off the local police chief. And that's how it stayed open. And it was open for a good 20, 30 years. And you feel like Googling it, it was called the Danish Health Club. <clears throat> and being there for a good maybe two or three years or so, I worked um, like 10 to 8 or something. Like the hours weren't as long. Again, it was more high-priced. So many women worked there from the North Shore area, mostly Massachusetts girls and women, mostly all with traffickers, maybe a few older women that didn't have traffickers anymore. They were just still working there. A woman who was a school teacher by day and would come at 4 o'clock after school and prostitute. She had a, pet. She had a trafficker. You would never imagine this woman. Um, other women, you know, another single woman with a, a, a son with severe disability, like, like, you just don't know who you could be next to in the grocery store, wherever, that could be a victim of this because we don't all look a certain way. 
I don't know what we think in our minds of how victims look, but a lot of us just look like regular old women. And so being there for these years, um, my trafficker was making so much money, he talked me into going to college, and I thought it was a good idea because he wanted to open up a business as a front. So I got a business degree from Bunker Hill Community College. He pulled me out of my first college and my first hair salon. Everything completely changed. But now a few years, years, years later, I went to Bunker Hill and I got my associate's degree. Again, being trafficked in college, paying for all my classes in cash, made the dean's list, did really well because I poured everything I could into that degree because I figured he can't take it from me. So I'll work really hard at it. I tried to escape from him so many times. Every time I tried to leave, he'd come to my parents' house. Where else was I going to run? And he'd badger me, manipulate me, cry, show up with gifts, promise he won't hit me, he won't do that anymore. You're only going to be a no-good, dirty prostitute. No one's going to love you. No one's going to marry you. How are you going to ever make money like normal again? Right? All these things, all these lies that I believed. And I'd always go back. And so getting that degree was... Good, but I didn't feel any sense of pride or accomplishment because I was so numb. I was so, so numb, so shut off. I also started working out. I was working out like a maniac. So everything I did was, you know, intense because <laughs> I couldn't control anything so I could control what I could. I was like a size zero. I worked out, you know, eating disorders, all types of things. I saw my primary care physician two, three times a month because I always had issues I had a constant lump in my throat because my body was physically reacting to the stress that I was under. I had bruising. I had headaches, obviously head damage. Um, was self-diagnosing myself with ADD, ADHD, depression, anxiety, just med-seeking, trying to find a, some kind of relief. All types of um, vaginal issues, not necessarily STD, but all types of other issues. You name it, I was there constantly. And my doctor was just way too busy to connect. Right? He just always had his back turned. And he would ask me questions and then type away on the computer. And so I never felt safe enough to connect because I couldn't have a real conversation with him. But the nurse practitioner was always nice. And she would sit down and, and cross her legs and say, what's going on? You know, and she would have a conversation. And then I wasn't able to tell her everything. I wasn't able to verbalize it. But they tagged me as a domestic violence victim which they put me um, a referral to the DV clinic in the hospital, and I went and saw that lady just one time. And I say this because she planted some seeds of hope. She gave me a little bit of tools for my toolbox, and that's what it is. You don't know when you're going to meet a trafficking victim, and you're not going to be able to just rescue them and pull them out of the life. It just takes time and seed planting. You plant a little seed, you plant a little seed, someone else waters them, and so forth. I was with my trafficker for five years. It took a long, long time to get out. But I had to find that inside of me. So after graduating, going through all this, Maine ends up getting busted. There was an underage girl working there. Typical story. She was 13 years old. I knew she was young, but I wasn't, you know, I was in my own survival mode. I wasn't able to really help anybody. But I knew she looked young, but I didn't pay attention. Long story short, she was a runaway from the foster care system who had an aunt who was looking for her. And the thing is, is that they say 300,000 kids go missing each year in the U.S., and that 100,000 of those kids end up falling through the cracks and ending up in the commercial sex trade because no one's looking for them. The system is too big, it's too broken, it's too overloaded. 
But this young girl had an aunt who kept calling and calling. They also had a lot of other financial issues, money laundering, and all this stuff going on. The owner of the club died. There was an ex-cop there working the desk, and his wife worked in the back as a prostitute. Like, things were getting messy. And the FBI got involved. They started doing surveillance for two years. And by God's grace, I had a sense that the place was going to get busted. And I told my trafficker, it's going down. Things aren't going to go well. And I thought I could, like, retire. And this is when the Internet became popular. So he started posting ads of me on Craigslist. You can buy a refrigerator and a human on the same website, Wild, and all these other adult websites, which opened up a whole lot of other doors because now I'm going in and out of people's homes, okay, which is inherently more dangerous because no one's there. No one knows what's going on. Businesses after hours when the employees would leave. Um, Again, fancy hotels in Boston, right? I'm working all over New England. Okay, a couple more months go by, six months or so, I get pregnant with my trafficker's child. And I thought this was it. This could be the way out. Definitely don't have to work anymore. How's he going to sell me pregnant? Who's going to purchase me pregnant? I can have the baby. I can have everything that he promised. I was writing down how much money I was making each week, each day, to show to him, look how much money. Look, look, because it was never enough. You know, he'd say, no, a little bit more, a little bit more. And to give you an idea, I used to save the pieces of papers. I made $28,000 in one month. I barely make that a year as a missionary. (laughs) Probably not even that much. So imagine in a month, and you times that by three, four other times, you know, how many other women he had at any given moment. And so I'm holding on to this pregnancy, hoping that everything can be over and I can move on and he forces me to terminate the pregnancy. And I was holding on for the time in Massachusetts where you couldn't have an abortion. I don't remember now how many weeks that was, but I knew there was a law and that I couldn't go. And I was holding on, but he kept pressuring and pressuring and pressuring. So I knew if I didn't go, if I didn't make that appointment, I'd lose the baby in some other god-awful way. So I had to do what I had to do. And I was completely horrified. That's not what I wanted. I was, I don't even remember. It was completely traumatizing. But that's what lit the fire inside me for good. Because I was like, I got to go. You can use and abuse me all these years, but to take a life, way more than I could handle. So I started saving money without him noticing for the millionth time. But this time I had a plan. Every time I'd work, I'd take a few hundred off the top. Because I was so trained and so manipulated. He wasn't even home half the time. I'd put the money where I was supposed to. But now I start taking off a few hundred, putting it in Ziploc bags and tying elastics around it. And I'd put it in the dirt in my potted plants because I wanted to save a few thousand dollars so I'd get my own apartment. So now I got all this money saved. But how does a woman who's been in the commercial sex trade a year or 10 years walk into a real estate agency? Can't fill out an application, (laughs) right? We have no job. We have no reference. We have mental illness, substance abuse issues, uh, children to take care of, criminal records this long with felony charges. So the door just gets that much further away. Because prostitution oppresses. It doesn't elevate like it promises. But I was determined, and again, God's hand was on my life. I would cry out to God continuously, to a God whom I did not really understand or know, for help. And my grandmother was still alive, and I would still visit them from time to time, and she read Oprah magazines. Remember when Oprah had, like, that new magazine? (laughs) And Oprah always had, like, positive quotes and encouraging things. 
In order to cope with my life, I would literally open up these magazines and cut out all the positive quotes and tape them in a notebook. Like, I would just, anything I could to, therapists have told me to this day, if you didn't hold on to hope, you would have killed yourself. Because there were so many times I wanted to just open the car door and roll out on the highway. You know? So whatever I could hold on to, I did. And I'd cry to God and ask him to save me, ask him to help me. Um, Not Jesus, God, right? God, help me. And don't you know, I'm working on Craigslist in and out of people's homes. I have this money saved. And a sex buyer, Craig, calls me off of Craigslist. I go to his house, and nothing sexual happens. And he just pays me a lot of money. And we sit there and hang out. And week after week, he would continue to call me back. So we became friends. And in my mind, he's safe. Because nothing bad is happening. And he was Italian. He was from East Boston, where we could have been cousins. And he owned a small business. And so I start to feel safe and safe with this guy. And now that I know prostitution research says when a woman's ready to leave the commercial sex trade, she needs one safe, supportive person to reach out to. Just one. And this guy became my safe person. So I send him an email. I say, my name's not whatever. It's Jasmine. I'm in a lot of trouble can you lie and say that I work for you and make me fake pay stubs? I need to get my own place. And he said, sure. And so I was able to walk into the real estate agency, give them my pay stubs, give them my cash, and get my apartment. How does that happen besides God's grace? There's another woman I work with today who, her safe person ended up being an Israeli cab driver in New New Jersey. He would drive her from place to place to place, and he started to always bump into her, and he started asking her questions. And then he got her aunt's phone number and would call the aunt and would save money for her. She'd give him money, and he'd save it, send it to the aunt. And he was in connection with this aunt all the way in Massachusetts. And so when she was ready to leave, she was able to go through him and get out. You just never know. And so I'm ready to leave my apartment. Obviously, he's not going to help me pack and help me move. No, I leave with trash bags, nothing. That's another thing. When you leave, you leave with nothing. Everything you got to leave behind, think about that. You know, all that materialistic stuff that makes you feel worth. And everything I purchased. You're leaving with nothing. And you've made thousands and thousands of dollars. That's really hard to walk away from it all. But I was determined. And I pack up my bags, two trash bags, like I said, because he wasn't going to let me take anything. He made sure I knew that. And I called the local police. I said, my boyfriend's going to get mad. Can you come hang out on the porch? And the cop did. He stood on the porch. He didn't ask any questions, glaring red flags. I mean, obviously, like we're in our early 20s. There's Mercedes, an Escalade, a motorcycle, leather and granite. He's black. I'm white. Just saying. <laughs> like so many red flags, like your typical story. And the cop stands there on the porch. I leave with my cat and my dog, my trash bags. And I get in the car that was in my name anyway, and I drive away to my new place. Cop doesn't follow me, doesn't give me any resources. I don't know if that would have helped. And I get there, and I'm suicidal. I'm hopeless. I'm overwhelmed. I have this big apartment. I have nothing. I call my mom because, I don't know, I actually have a mother to call. So many women I work with today don't have that. They don't have a mother to call. They have nowhere to go back. So what keeps them trapped in the cycle even longer is that they have no place to turn. I call my mom. I don't have the courage to tell her everything because I'm too ashamed. 
But she had known over those years that I was in an abusive relationship, obviously. She saw me come and go. She saw the bruising. She never asked questions, though. But when I needed her, she showed up. And I said, he made me do things I didn't want to do. And I'm so glad to be away from him. I'm going to do it this time. She bought me some furniture. A few weeks go by, and I panic, and I call him back. Because, you know, relapse is sometimes a part of the process. And there's also rules to this life. If I go out and prostitute on my own, I'm considered a renegade. And if I get caught, I'll get killed. And my other option is getting purchased by another trafficker. But I didn't want to do that because I didn't know much more violent he was going to be than this guy. So I was just trying to work out a deal. I'll live here, you live there, I'll give you a percentage of the money. Of course, that doesn't work out. More time goes by, and after a night of a lot of violence and blood and a broken glass door, I had the courage to call 911, and he was arrested for domestic violence charges, which then led me to get a restraining order, and that kept him away. Not many traffickers care about a piece of paper. You know, they'll still come after you. But by God's grace, he left me alone. And I go to get a new job. I work 9 to 5 as a secretary. (laughs) I'm, like, falling asleep at the desk. Can you imagine, like, taking me out of that life and plopping me into normal society? I couldn't even make a full sentence. I couldn't talk to people. Um, And at the end of the month, I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't pay all my rent and my car payment. It was probably more than I made in in a week, right? It was just crazy. It was so, so upside down. And I started hanging out with all new friends, and I had a big empty apartment, so everyone would come over and party. And this is when OxyContin was popular. And so they're all doing coke, and they're drinking and bringing over OxyContin. And before you know it, I'm dibbling and dabbling. I don't realize I'm becoming addicted, but now I'm addicted. And it pushes me back into the life of prostitution, not with a pimp, but with a drug addiction. So you have to realize how closely linked substance abuse is and trafficking, prostitution, commercial sex trade, whatever you want to call it, exploitation. It is so closely linked. So now life would unravel, of course, because you can't do drugs and live a normal, productive life. A few more years would go by. I'd be homeless. I'd lose everything. I'd be sleeping on park benches, addicted to heroin, overdosing in Dunkin' Donut bathrooms, calling my grandparents, trying to manipulate them to give me money, you know, really becoming someone I never would have imagined. And every time I would OD and the EMT would come up and I'd be in the ambulance and they Narcane me, I'd wake up. And the EMT, I remember a few times, they would look at me and say, what are you doing here? Go home. And I'd say to myself, go home. How do I get there? Where is home? (laughs) Someone, like, take me. How do I get home? You know what I mean? Because I felt so lost. I felt so far away. I felt like I would never be the same person that I was at 19. You know, now I'm 27. I'm living on the streets. I'm, I'm sleeping on a park bench. There is no way I'm going to ever go back to who I was because I didn't even know who that, who that person was or where she went. And time would go on. In 2006, yes, 2006, my brother would die of a drug overdose. So I told you he was abused as a kid. He was never able to find that inner healing, and he did that geographical cure. He traveled all over the world. He lived in Sydney, Australia, in London, San Francisco. And when he ended up in New York... He got involved with a partner who was in crystal meth. He lived that homosexual life, um, that whole gay lifestyle, the partying, the drugs, like so glamorous on the outside. But we lived very parallel lives. He was a male prostitute as well. 
I don't think he was ever trafficked, but that was part of that scene. And he contracted HIV, really struggled with that identity. And when I would go visit him, he didn't care. He would tell me, this is how he makes money and this is how he lives. But I was too, again, ashamed to share anything about my life. But imagine we were living like such similar lives. And so when he died in 2006, it was another wake-up call. And I realized I have to get clean and sober because I don't want my parents to lose me. And then they have no children. And I always thought of my mother like, wow, she'll never make it. And so I tried to get clean and sober, not at that time. That changed my thinking. So finally, by 2007, I was in and out of many detoxes and programs and halfway houses. And it wasn't until a woman who was known to take girls off the street in Somerville to a Pentecostal church is when I met Jesus Christ. And everything changed. (laughs) And I was like straight off the street, maybe three months clean, And she takes me to a church in Somerville, and we walk in, and everyone's full of joy, right? And they're all dancing and praising and worshiping the Lord. And I had never stepped foot in a place like that before. Didn't freak me out. I wanted what they had because it seemed authentic. And I was so desperate and so broken. And before we leave, we're in the parking lot. I'm in the back seat. She's in the front seat. She's probably in her 60s or 70s. And all her friends are in the car, all these older women, And here I am in the back, and she turns around. She says, honey, do you want to know how much Jesus loves you and that he can wash you clean and forgive you? And I said, yes, and I'm crying. And Who is he? And she's praying with me, and I accepted the Lord right there in the backseat of a car. How appropriate. (laughs) Because I think of all the unholy things I've ever done in the backseat of a car. But that is the Lord, right? He redeems. And he meets us in our shame, and he meets us in that disgust because he's not afraid to go there. And that's why I fell in love with him because I was like, if he can save me, if he can love me, then this is pretty good because I am the worst of the worst. And so time would go on. I'd relapse, um, but it was like God has a hand on me because guess what? Everything got way worse really fast. Everything was falling apart, and I just had to stop running. You know, I was like, okay, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And I got clean and sober for the last time in September of 2007. Amen. Amen. I'm going to put this down. Sorry if it's loud. So here we are, right, all these years later, um, by God's grace. I did not know I was a survivor of trafficking for the first five years of recovery. I had to put my life together. I had to get clean and sober. I had to learn about boundaries and healthy coping skills and uh, all these, you know, things that, like, no one wants to do in therapy. Um, Like, how to pay your rent on time, you know, how to have a normal job, all these things. Um, But it was because I landed in a really good church of really good people. I ended up in another church in Saugus that was a non-denominational church, and they were like Jesus to me. That's how I got to know the Lord personally, because people were like him. They didn't judge me. They took me right under their wing. I came over for um, the holidays. They, it was just amazing, the, the love. And the pastor was just so genuine and authentic. And I learned all my Bible basics because he taught from the Bible, right? He opened the word, and he taught from the word. I'm a daughter of the king. Um, you know, who he is, who I am, that identity, again, It didn't all come together, but it was just little by little. 
And then I got pregnant at a year clean because now I'm on fire and I found Jesus and I think everyone wants to. And I went back to an old relationship and to make my amends because when you're in the 12 steps, right, AA and NA, you have to make amends. And I got pregnant. What? Well, that's not how you convert people, just so you know. You don't go and try to make amends and then get pregnant. That, yeah. So as I look back, I realize I was still looking to people for validation, for, for healing, for all that. And I knew the entire time it was wrong. I'm pregnant, but what was I going to do? So I had my child. I couldn't believe they allowed me to leave the hospital with a human. I was like barely able to take care of myself, never mind a real person. But I've done it. He's 13. I've managed. I've always co-parented with his dad, which is really hard and complicated. Um, He'll probably need the most therapy. I always joke. Um, But it's been a journey. Still not knowing that I was a survivor. Because not wanting to talk about it. Not wanting to go there. But just letting these people love me. Learning how to, again, be a mother. Walk my faith out. Got my Massachusetts real estate um, license. And I started renting apartments. Did that for five years, which gave me that independence and ability to take care of things. And then I met a guy in the church, and we got married rather quickly. And I had um, another child with him after we got married. And that's when everything came out. And I couldn't do it. And we had to separate because he was triggering me constantly. I didn't know why. He didn't know why. He was an addict with a lot of trauma history as well. But we had to separate. My daughter was maybe six months old. And within that separation, I found myself at another church. It was a vineyard church. It was very charismatic and deep healing going on. And after one night of intense prayer of this transformation group I was attending, I was seeking the Lord. I wanted to be better. I knew my marriage was falling apart. I didn't understand why. I knew there was stuff going on inside, but I didn't know how to fix it. And I was seeking the Lord. And after one night of prayer... I get these song lyrics in my mind, and they go, swing low, sweet chariot, blah, 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 blah. And I had no idea why these song lyrics were going in my mind. And so I go home and I Google, swing low, sweet chariot, and I realize it's what the African-American slaves sang as they jumped to freedom on the Underground Railroad. And I'm saying to myself, I'm not black. I'm not a slave. What does this have to do with me? Nothing. And I start to realize, wait a second, we're all slaves to sin before we come to Christ. So maybe there's somewhat of a connection. I email my pastor and I tell him, and he was always good at never telling me the answer, but telling me to ask Jesus. And that was so annoying because I just wanted someone to tell me, no, 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 I'm not, you just tell me the directions, please. <laughs> and he, he gives me Psalm 32, 7. For the Lord is my deliverance, and he gives me songs. No, for the Lord is my protection, and he gives me songs of deliverance. Still no connection. Okay, a little more time goes by. I get invited to a meeting, and it's all these women. This one woman is talking about her ministry, Route 1 Ministry, where she goes into the strip clubs on Route 1 and ministers to the dancers. So when they're ready to exit the sex trade, she's their safe person. And she's using all my old language. Drug addicts, pimps, prostitutes, stripping. And I'm on fire, and I'm like having to tell her. And and all these other women there that I don't know. And I raise my hand and I say, how do I help? How do I give back? I did everything you're talking about, and I want to help young girls so they don't end up like me. 
And she said, you're a survivor. You're amazing. And I said, huh? I'm a what? And all these ladies are clapping. Like, I just told you I was a prostitute. And, like, you're excited. You know, it's wild that you tell your deepest, darkest secret, and they don't judge you. But, like, everything that I had been through up until that point was now validated. Like, there was a term. And I no longer was looking through the lens of a victim, but now I was a survivor. And so I went and got a job interview at a place called My Life, My Choice, where they hire survivors to be mentors to at-risk girls or girls who had been exploited. And I couldn't believe half the interview was, tell us your story. And it was the first time I said anything out loud, and I was hired based on my lived experience. And so, again, that was empowering. Then I started getting asked to share my story. I didn't want to do that. But, again, my pastor was always, Jazz, lean into transparency. Be authentic and watch Jesus show up. And I'd be like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And the first time I shared was at my home church. And um, women would come up to me because we did it for this event where it was a play. And I would share my story. I would narrate my story to interpretive dance. It was amazing. And so women would come up to me after with tears streaming down their face telling me, I have the same story, but I'm too ashamed to talk about it. Another time I shared my story at a Bible study, and a woman came up to me, said she had been in the church 17, 20 years, has the same story, but won't talk about it. And I realized, wow, there are even women in the church that are survivors that aren't talking about it, because we're not talking about it. And what's that key thing that's keeping them all stuck? Shame. So then I started speaking at other churches and all these places a lot in Lynn, and I started realizing a lot of the women in the halfway homes, have these drug addictions, have my story, no one's talking about it, and they're relapsing because they're going out prostituting because they have no money, and that's all they know, or someone's forcing them to, they can't buy themselves a bus pass or a pack of cigarettes, so they go out and prostitute, and they feel so shameful, they get high, and then they get kicked out of the program, and then they're homeless. And I saw this cycle continuing. And I wanted to help, so I started making these bags that are filled with toiletries that a lot of you have donated to that I'm so grateful for. So we started making these bags. I'd go to the dollar store. I'd bring my kids. I wanted them to know this is how we do faith. You know, we help people. We don't just go to church, but we actually, like, do things that are good for people. And we started filling these bags with soap, shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste, and giving them out to women on the street, to women in the programs. And then people started giving me money and giving me items, and I had no idea what to do with it. And they're like, who do I write this check to? I'm like, I don't know. Um, I need to figure this out. And so the Lord kept just moving me and moving me, and I had to name it something, so I named it Bags of Hope, because that's all it literally was, was a bag of hope. And things got so big, I came under the Emmanuel Gospel Center, so they're my missionary umbrella, because they hold the 501c3. I came under there. I started being a uh, missionary full-time, doing this work, public speaking, Um, handing out the bags, running groups, mentoring women. And we've been doing this so long now, we give out over 1,000 bags a year to women in Massachusetts, in jails, in domestic violence, anywhere we can find vulnerable women. And it's all by the community, which is so amazing. Um, And now I've moved to New Hampshire, so I live down here in Nashua. And um, I was just able to acquire a $50,000 grant from a private Christian foundation, and I was able to hire somebody to help me. So I have a chapter in Massachusetts and a chapter in New Hampshire. 
So the bags you guys fill today will go with us to New Hampshire, and we're expanding, and we're doing this good work. And we have about four survivors on our team now that have just celebrated five years in recovery that were bag recipients who now we've walked alongside. Um, and they've come to know the Lord, and they share their story. They're survivor leaders. We've helped women get in apartments, get their license back, um, heal relationships between them and their children. Just so many amazing things. Work with women coming out of jail and helping them get into safe homes across America because there's a lack of safe homes in New England. So that's my bigger vision and goal is to have a home for women, most likely here in New Hampshire. I don't know how that exactly is going to look. I don't know how I'm going to figure that out. But again, step by step, and the Lord will provide. Um, And I'm so, so grateful. In the meantime, um, before all that, my husband and I reconciled after the separation. And so we've reconciled. We have another baby. She's, she'll be five. She's my favorite. Because uh, she likes to cuddle, and she's cute. Um, I homeschool. I drive a minivan. Like, how did this ever happen but by God's grace? Um, amen. And... Um, written a book, which I guess is another little thing I'll, I'll share at the end. Um, during these early years of the ministry, I felt the Lord calling me to write my story. And I didn't want to just write the story because I felt like so many other survivors just write their story. I wanted it to be different. And so the Lord led me back into all my old journals. Can you believe I managed my only one good healthy coping skill was to write things that I was going through in notebooks. The whole time I was trafficked, the whole time of my addiction. And I was able to save those notebooks in my family, my parents' house. Because again, my parents are maybe dysfunctional, but they always lived somewhere stable. And I give them credit for that. And so I was able to save all my notebooks there. The Lord led me back into those journals, and I would literally open up the notebook and blog exactly what was written. And that was hard because some of it was shameful, it was deep. And I couldn't believe I went through that, that I experienced that, that I felt that way. It wasn't about the horrific details of the sex trade. It was what happens in the mind. And so I started blogging this, but I didn't want to leave people depressed and hopeless. So I started putting present-day reflections on the bottom. And women would start emailing me, telling me they were in the situation and that it was giving them hope. And they were saying, wow, you made it out. I'm in the situation right now. Maybe I can get out. And so I just kept sharing and sharing. And it took me two years to compile all those notebooks. And at the end, I went and saw um, publishers, like big Christian publishers and everything. And long story short, because I didn't have a platform of giant followers, they weren't going to give me a book deal. So no problem. So I ended up God sending me um, an editor who was a science writer, a Christian. And we sat together, and she helped me edit my whole book, and then she would put little tidbits about what happens in the brain and in the body during those periods of trauma. And it was a really great experience. And then we self-published it on Amazon. So all that to say, it's called The Diary of Jasmine Grace. And it was funny because I was talking to one of my survivor leader friends, and I couldn't figure out a title for the book. And she knew what it was based on. She read you know, some of the chapters. And she said, do it you know, like The Diary of Anne Frank. And I was like, who's Anne Frank? I didn't even know. Like, <laughs> so many things you miss, okay, when you're surviving all those years. 
I found out who Anne Frank was, and I was like, that's a great idea. So the Diary of Jasmine Grace, trafficked, recovered, redeemed. And it's $25 if you'd like to donate one to a woman in need. So we give out the books for free to all the women, not all, but many of the women that we meet. We've given out well over three, 400 books at this point. Um, or it's $15 if you don't want to donate. And it's also available on Amazon. Um, please reach out to me through my website, jasminegrace.org. If you have any questions that you can't, if you're streaming and you have questions, I've spoken to many mothers and fathers over the years who have daughters or sons even trapped in this life. Um, though if I can be a support and a help, please reach out and do that um, and let me know. But I thank you for your time. I thank you for your donations. We'll be out there doing the bags. We'll have the table. So please come by. Thank you so, so much. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, visit faithworship.org.